You're listening to The Savings Tip Jar with Dom Beattie and Harrison Asbury, powered by savings.com.au. Your home of consumer finance news, guides and product comparisons. G'day, welcome to another episode of The Savings Tip Jar podcast. I'm Dom Beattie and joining me as always to discuss all the hot topics in Oz Finance is Harrison Asprey. Happy Easter, Harrison. How'd you go over the long weekend? Thanks, Dom. Yeah, that's good. I went away for the long weekend and um, as a wise man once recommended, I stayed away from the refrigerator. Okay. Uh, there wasn't too much chocolate eating, okay. but uh, not to say there, w- there wasn't any, but that was reserved for uh, sort of my mates and his young child. So it was good to see the Easter joy through the lens of, a, of an infant. Uh, people have been saying it to me. They've not really been eating that much chocolate. Over Easter, plants being very expensive, you know, healthy nowadays, Mm. all eating our kale and chia smoothies. Yeah. Chocolate in this economy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fair. Fair. No, times are tough. Times are tough. Um, Yeah. I had a good Easter. Thanks for asking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How'd that go, Dom? Yeah. I just catch up with family and whatnot. All the the usual hassle with all that. So busy, but uh, but, uh, still still nice at the same time. Lovely. Lots of eating, but... uh, yeah, finance. Let's uh, let's talk about that stuff. Let's get right back into it. So we've got a belly full of food, seafood, some beers maybe, um, and but let's get right back to it. Uh, no rest for the wicked. So finance never sleeps. Uh, so first uh, news uh, off the rank um, is the RBA paused last Tuesday. So if you recall, cast your eyes back to last week, we shot the last podcast just before the mm-hmm. RBA decision. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of conjecture about if it will be uh, a pause or another hike or whatever. Um, but they, the RBA, so Dr. Phil Lowe, the governor there, uh, and his board elected to pause. So that's a 3.6% interest rate. Um, and they cited as uh, weaker economic figures. So inflation is coming off the boil, although it's you know at a 30-year high, not accounting for that year 2000 GST introduction. Um, and then uh, retail figures are a bit softer. Uh, household savings ratios are pretty weak. Um, and I thought it was interesting too that, uh, as always, uh, as the facts change, the the economists' opinions do too. So a lot of forecasts have been revised down. Don, um, you know, I think ANZ had the highest tip at four point one. They've mm-hmm. now revised that down to three point eight five. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. Uh, I mean, we did. A quick straw poll around the office um, about whether it was going to be a pause or a, or a hike that day, and uh, I was actually surprised to see pretty much everyone all thought pause. I thought it'd be more fifty-fifty, like we'd seen amongst economists. But um, yeah, I guess uh, I guess you know we're quite close to all the data. We report on it for the news on the savings and uh, InfraChoice and you know other websites in in our group. Which um, yeah, <laughs> had to slip that in there somewhere. And, and we knew that those inflation numbers were coming down. And we know that Governor Lowe is, you know, a, a dove. Dove at heart, I think. A, yeah, quite dovish. You know, if we use the dovish, hawkish terminology that often when it comes to interest rates, he he usually wants to sort of look for any reason not to not to hike and to just be a bit gentle, gentle on, on the economy. And, um, yeah, he's scared of, 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 you know, hiking too hard and then the economy just drops off a cliff. Someone's like card was declined in Sydney's Northern Beaches, so he decided to pause the cash rate. <laughs> yeah, something like that. He's like, yeah, lining up for his uh, his skim milk latte, and uh, yeah, saw the person in front of him's card declined. He's like, right, that times are tough. Well, we can't afford oat milk anymore, so 
Yeah, yeah. No, oat milk. It's delicious, but um, it, it is expensive. But uh, mm. quite expensive. Um, so yeah, not really a huge surprise that there's a pause. The main thing we wonder is, is that it? Is it does it stop at, at three point six? Is that mm. do we hold steady there and then it eventually I don't know start seeing cuts again, or are we going to see another hike? later on this year as some people are suggesting mm. time will tell um and the experts are split on this as well i yeah. i feel like um like a lot of people are still sort of starting to say it would be kind of unusual for a pause and then just to hike again the next month um mm. like what does that really achieve um i think the rba is wanting to do a ferris bueller and look around uh, maybe have a have a day off school there um but i thought it was interesting too um if we looked overseas to the bank of canada um, they're expected to pause uh, following uh, a pause in March. So, but yeah. Bank of Canada's interest rate is four point five percent, so it's a lot higher than ours. But I think they were the first major central bank to pause in March. Mm-hmm. Um, so, could that be some tea leaves for the RBA? Who knows? Um, and th- and that's all it is really. Like, who the hell knows? Yeah, I- I'm just still imagining Phil Lowe as Ferris Bueller, you know, taking his mate's dad's car out for a drive around Chicago on a beautiful day. He has a really Just attractive rolling. girlfriend, Sloane. <laughs> yeah. Good movie if you haven't seen it. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, classic. Um, I suppose uh, we should talk about something else as well. Um, term deposit rates, which are always a very exciting topic. Well, yeah. But, um, you know, often you, know, you talk about tea leaves. The, the, the rate movement you see in term deposit rates is often you know, an indicator of what, what banks are thinking are going to happen with interest rates, mm. um, not just in Australia, but obviously you know, we talk about how globalised the financial market is and banks get their funding from, from overseas. Um, so that all impacts what rates they're offering on term deposits. Now, we're seeing a bit of mixed movement now, mm. uh, which is no surprise, I guess, with there not being a, um, a, a hike with rates on hold. Um, so obviously we're not seeing too many. Well, actually, there were some hikes. That's that's quite interesting. But thrown in there were also some cuts. Mm. Now what I I saw when just glancing over sort of the, the the movements of last week, um, some of the cuts that we were seeing uh, from the likes of Macquarie and Bank Australia uh, tended to be to the more longer term rates. So for example, Macquarie mm. cut its one year term deposit rate by ten basis points from four point six to four point five, and Bank Australia cut its um, its uh, highest uh, rate on three-year term deposits by 20 basis points from 4.2 to 4%. So sometimes that's an indicator that banks are thinking, oh, okay, no, so rates won't be going too high, then maybe we'll, we'll start cutting our, our longer-term rates. But then interestingly, we saw on really short-term term deposit rates, like three-month, six-month terms, um, there were actually a few hikes. Uh, we saw AMP um, beef up its three-month terms by up to f- by 60 basis points get out of to a max of 3.95%. Now, I should clarify as well, it does get a bit confusing when you talk about these rates, 3.95% for a three-month term. You might think you get that 3.95% no, no. for just having your, your money aside for, for three months. But no, that's um, all those rates are expressed per annum. So mm. that's the annualized rate. So you get the equivalent of um, you know three months worth of a of an annual rate of 3.95 percent if yeah. you do the math and figure out what that is just divide that by four essentially yeah and there's yeah. your there's your rate um and uh yeah greater bank boosted its three-month terms by up to 50 basis points to three percent and bank australia boosted its six-month um term deposit rates by up to 40 basis points to a maximum rate of 4.15 percent so yeah. still some hikes happening but on in the shorter term deposit space so i guess you know maybe some of these uh banks thinking 
all right, interest rates might go up, you know, maybe once or twice more mm. in the next few months, but longer term down the track, they're, they're perhaps seeing some some cuts on the horizon. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think it's interesting too to look at the five-year term deposit rates in the market. Uh, to my knowledge, there's only one, which is from Judo Bank, offering a 5% five-year TD rate. Um, and they've been stubbornly, you know, below 5% uh, for what seems like over six months now. Because I remember seeing back in September, uh, five-year TD rates of around 4.95 and they didn't really budge. So that kind of goes to show that a lot of banks are expecting there to be a bit of rates fluctuation over the next couple of years. And um, if we look at Macquarie too, they've kind of toyed and danced around with their with their rates as well. So um, they're always, they seemingly always cut by 10 basis points one week and then raise it again by the next week. And um, But yeah, if what a lot of economists say is going to come true over the next sort of year or two, um, there could be some RBA cash rate cuts. Um, this could be the peak of the term deposit market, yep. especially in the longer term. Um, okay. So lock it in, Eddie. I right. mean, you know, not financial advice. Do, yeah. do whatever the hell you want. Uh, Assess your financial circumstances. Yeah, because with term deposits, you know, there's always that thing around if you want to exit early, you might have a penalty to pay or yeah. you yeah. sacrifice a lot of interest too. And um, I think it's interesting too that uh, there's a few savings accounts out there now uh, over five percent so it's like do you want you know short-term gain or um do you want to look with a longer term horizon and lock in that td rate uh, who knows well yeah i mean if if you know two three years from now the rba cash rate is is back down around you know 1.5 to two percent and you know the best rates you're seeing on savings accounts turn deposits are all around three percent and you're still getting that five percent per annum uh for five years You'll be sitting quite pretty so that that's the game i guess when it comes to turn deposits and you know i guess it, it's the same sort of thing with with fixed rates right you, you want to fix your rate on your home loan um when uh when rates are, are at the bottom but it's so hard to pick that bottom but then yeah when it comes to tds you're trying to pick that that peak that top of the mm. market so there yeah could be could be arguments there for for locking in a long-term td at five percent if if that offer still is available by judo did you say it was still uh yeah to my knowledge you know good guys judo small small neobank um anyway moving slightly to a different topic now um it's not strictly finance related but you know if you're in the market for a, a car or a car loan this could be news for you um so electric vehicles in march uh, electric vehicle sales rather outpaced hybrid sales for the first time ever on a year-to-date basis um, so there were 6,621 electric vehicle sales in March uh, or 6.8% of the market I think around 97,000 vehicles were sold in March in Australia um, and that was largely aided by the arrival of the Tesla Model Y so a lot of people would have had these on back order for a year or more and they finally arrived on Australian shores um, the latest shipment of it in March. So that is kind of reflected in the data when they all roll off the ships and everyone can get their hands on the Elon Musk mobile. Um, so, and I thought it was interesting too that more and more people are preferencing utes and SUVs as their vehicle of choice. So the top five sales were all utes or SUVs. Um, so you think of like the Hilux, the Ford Ranger, the Mitsubishi Outlander snuck in there too, and then the Tesla Model Y as well, which is a uh, SUV. So I thought that was interesting, Dom, because there's been a bit of talk recently that um, 
uh, vehicle emissions have actually gone up in recent years because more people are opting for utes and SUVs rather than compact cars. So no longer is the Corolla or, you know, the Camry or the Hyundai i30 in the top sellers. It's all about utes and SUVs. So maybe this uh, push for electric vehicles might balance that out somewhat in a few years' time. Yeah, she's been sounding a bit like a, I don't know, Top Gear podcast or something like that. Now talking about cars. but I don't mind that. But uh, I guess, you know, car sales, it's um, so closely linked to, you know, the sentiment of consumers. But when you feel confident, you're going out there and you're you're buying cars. And I guess with electric vehicles outpacing hybrid, I dare say electric vehicles are probably more expensive than the average hybrid. So yeah. maybe that's a sign that um, people are still confident with their cash and they're going out and forking out for these uh these fancy cars. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to get myself a Tesla, but uh, they are still very expensive, aren't they? What are they? What's the typical price of a Tesla these days? Oh, well... Uh, cheapest one, probably, what, 60K or something? Yeah, Tesla's, I think, recently slashed prices too, just from the sheer competition on the market nowadays from, like, yeah. Chinese manufacturers and things like that. But I think you can pick up a new model 3 uh, for about 68 grand 65 something like that um and then model y and then of course the the model s are a lot more expensive wow. um to my knowledge uh but yeah look prices are coming down in the, in the electric space and you no longer have to suffer from a lot of range anxiety as you might have once had to face uh because ranges are getting better and the prices mm-hmm. are getting better as well so not to turn this into an automotive podcast but um mm-hmm. yeah and to swing it back to finance, you know, there's often um, cheaper car loan rates available for people who opt for green cars. So that's hybrid or electric vehicles. You can slash, you know, 30 to 50 basis points or something like that on your car loan if you opt for a green uh, zero emissions vehicle. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, final piece of news here. Um, we talk a bit about, you know, there being a bit of a, a rental crisis at the moment, a real shortage of, of rental properties available and um, seeing rents going up, starting to really soar and seeing these little tent cities popping up, which is really sad. And these are often people that, you know, are quite well well off and, and can't afford to, to get a place, but they just can't find anywhere. And that's resorted to living in their car or, or living in a tent in the park somewhere. Yeah. Um, but a potential solution has been, been proposed by the Property Council of Australia. Um, and they're saying it's uh, build-to-rent developments. Um, they're saying they're the key to easing the pressures in Australia's rental market. Um, so basically with build to rent um, it's a developer or an institutional investor that owns an entire complex that they've built and uh, they'll rent it out the apartments instead of selling them so when you see big developments you think oh, are they going to flog off all these apartments sell them off to, to owner occupiers but these won't be sold off to owner occupiers they're only built for renting as the name implies um, and this is a model that's really big in the US the UK and Europe but it's never really taken off here yeah. um, um, where, you know, in Australia, so much of the rental stock is in the hands of, of just your mum and dad investors, you know, buying a, a property in the suburbs to rent out. Um, but, uh, yeah, the Property Council suggests that um, these these projects could develop, uh, could deliver 150,000 new apartments over 10 years. Yeah. And uh, their chief executive, Mike Zorba, says the bill to rent is as close to a housing policy silver bullet as they come. Wow. So, you know, built to rent... They have spoken about this in the past. Um, you know, I've seen that there have been some sort of proposed tax reforms to encourage more people to to do these sort of build to rent developments. But there are sort of arguments for and against them. And I guess typically, you know, you say, okay, these these built to rent developments could obviously build, boost rental supply. 
but you know, would this come at the expense of supply of owner occupier property? So yeah. properties for people wanting to buy, because a lot of people in Australia they don't want to rent forever; they want to eventually buy their own place. Um, whereas, you know, I feel like in the, 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 that mentality is slightly different in in Europe, where yeah. some people think, oh no, I, why would I buy? I can rent; it's it's fine. Yeah. I, can, I can just not have to go into debt and just save up lots of money and invest. Um, but in Australia, we just have this, this this dream of owning our own property that we call our own. But um, yeah, so I mean, there's always this tug of war I feel between rental supply and owner occupier supply. You know, when you um, when you have investors dominating the market and buying lots of property, it's good for the rent for renters because there's more rental supply available, keeps rents low. But then that drives up the price of owner occupier housing. But then when you have this swing the other way around, as we saw in in COVID, when suddenly a lot of people first-time buyers rushed into the market, took advantage of sort of the boosted grants available. Mm. and um, you know, moved out of these share houses and, and bought all these houses, suddenly the rental supply was really squeezed. And, um, and now we're seeing you know, really record low vacancy rates, rents really starting to soar. So, but then regardless of what happens, the overall price of housing seems to keep going up, whether it's yeah. investors dominating or owner occupiers dominating. But um, yeah, what, do you, what are your thoughts on Build to Rent? I think it is interesting because, like as you said, it is a pretty rare phenomenon um, in Australia. I had to actually Google what like build to rent means, and mm. um, yeah, it's a lot more popular in the US. And you see that on like those um, US real estate shows and things like that. So, fun fact: uh, in the US, a condo is an apartment that's owner occupied, and an apartment refers to someone that is part of this build to rent scheme that just rents oh, off really? the back of that. Okay. Um, so yeah, the more you know, um, but I, I think it is interesting because in in COVID, low interest rates theoretically facilitated a lot of owner occupier home sales, and we saw that in the ABS data that's always coming out. Um, but it's a harder thing to gauge whether that's a renter turning into an owner occupier, um, like that pass through. And I think we've asked that of um, guests we've had on the podcast before. There's no real concrete data on saying yes, this person was a renter and is now an owner-occupier. Because theoretically, you know, it's in Australia, it's generally better in the long run, uh, depending on your goals and whatever, to own a home and have a roof over your head that you can call yours as opposed to renting your whole life. Because if we look to sort of Germany, you know, there's like 10-year leases are pretty common. They don't have like inspections every three months. They don't care if you have a pet or not. Or um, it's quite common for you to be able to paint the walls and, yeah, and um, change the oven or yeah. do a, even a minor renovation without having to consult the landlord, uh, which is pretty much unheard of in Australia. So um, for build-to-rent to really take off to create a sort of strong rental market and a strong renter class, I guess, um, you need to sort of change the framework around property management and how tenants are treated in Australia. So yeah. um, it's, a, it's a bit of a tough one, but look, anything that sort of unlocks supply and I think anyone that says supply isn't the issue here is uh, probably wrong um, because 150,000 new apartments over 10 years um, would go a long way in, 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 in sort of ending this uh, rental crisis. And um, and we've seen too that, I think I, I, think I read somewhere that uh, over nine in 10 uh, rental properties are funded by the private market. So, you know, mum and dad investors, all those people that own a few investment properties rather than um, build-to-rent schemes that are owned by corporations, super companies. Well, that's like still that. private market, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's still private market, um, but a bit of a different private market, I guess. Mm. Um, 
And then, because that's been a lot of the criticism too, is that, um, you know, the so-called mum and dad investors in air quotes uh, have been, you know, arguably hard, hard done by, by, you know, changes to um, tenancy laws and, um, you know, the new Queensland rent cap and things like that. Mm. It just, it doesn't address the fundamental supply issue. Um, which I think we talked about last week to Eliza Owen, who was also on our podcast from Core yeah. Logic. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing, and um, I think any sort of policies is good food for thought. Yeah, I think naturally builds around development. If it's a big institutional developer or institutional investor that that's in charge of, of all the the leasing out of all this stuff, yeah. probably gives you a lot more stability, right? Um, you're not you know, at the mercy of the whim of the mum and dad landlord that, that you've got, mum and yeah. dad the landlord. Like, for example, myself, you know, we, we were renting quite comfortably a, a place that we liked and a nice area we liked. And we were told we suddenly had to get out of there because the, the, the owner wanted to, to move back in. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess when, when you've got just a big, large development, big apartment complex that's uh, that's owned by this huge you know, corporation. Yeah. Um, there's probably less chance of, of, of that happening. And, and like you said, you, you might have these sort of longer term leases, more flexibility allow you to you know, paint the walls and, and, and do things like that. I think interestingly what I've read, some build to rent developments um, actually tend to have higher rents than, than normal. Yeah. Uh, sort of just still, you know, homes in the suburbs, mom and dad investor type landlorded uh, properties. Um, but that tends to be because these big developments come with a lot of amenities. So you've got lifts, You've got you might even have concierge at the front desk. You might have swimming pool, gym, tennis courts. So you're probably getting a bit more value for your money in that sense. So, so maybe maybe even though it could be on average a bit higher, um, it could be a bit more worth it because you've got more. So and, yeah, I'd welcome it. I'd say yeah. And and on that too, I, um, for so long until sort of recently, a lot of uh, private investors, so the so-called mum and dad investors. Um, could rely on offering maybe cheaper than usual rents because the capital gain was so good. Mm. Now it's maybe not the case, which is why partly we're seeing this rental squeeze at the moment mm. is because capital gains aren't as strong as maybe they used to be, um, although they are coming back. But um, so they have to charge more rents to kind of make up for that that shortfall, I guess. So mm. um, maybe that's one reason why you think these build to rent things won't won't uh, appreciate in value as quickly as like a privately owned mm. house. So, yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, yeah, let's talk some more property then with, uh, for our Fiscal Focus segment with Simon Cohen. Can't wait. Now, as many of you can attest to, buying property can often be an arduous process and especially so in a tight market. It's typically the biggest purchase of our lives, so naturally you don't want to rush these things. Some expert help can also go a long way, which is why some Aussies use a buyer's agent when purchasing property. Now, joining us to tell us more about this service is the CEO and founder of Cohen Handler Buyers Agents and star of Lux Listing Sydney, Simon Cohen. Simon, welcome to the Savings Tip Jar podcast. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here. Thanks, Simon. First question off the bat. Uh, so, we'll do a bit of uh, buyers agent myth busting. So, what are some myths that you want to talk through and bust about buyers agents? And do you only need a buyers agent if you're sort of buying at the luxury end of the market? Yeah, well, I think there's two myths. I think one is that uh, I guess you need a buyer's agent only if you're buying a luxury property, which is not the case. The majority of the properties our, our, our company buys and we're Australia-wide are everyday properties for everyday people. And uh, so there certainly isn't an entry level or price point in which you need to be at to use a buyer's agent. And two, 
that a buyer's agent should cost you money. You know, you should only be using a buyer's agent if they're actually saving you money. So Simon, you know, a lot of people might have heard of buyer's agents, but um, you know, exactly what value do they provide and, and can they lead to cheaper properties? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's three types of value points I think that they bring. The first is by finding sort of everything that exists in the marketplace. Uh, and at Cold Handler, about 80% of what we buy is all for pre-market. So they should be scouring the market for sort of everything that exists and getting you access to properties you're unable to find on your own. They should be doing all the due diligence and research around the property, coming up with what they think it's worth and why they think it's worth that. Is it a good street? Is it a good building? All the due diligence points. And three, they should be negotiating the lowest price possible for you by putting a strategy in place to make that happen. And so they should absolutely be leading to to cheaper properties for you. For sure. And I think uh, we'll talk about auctions now. And uh, Melbourne and Sydney have um, been quite strong in auctions over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. But, you know, somewhere up here like Brisbane, uh, the auction market has really only started to develop. Um, and a lot of people might be wondering how they can kind of uh, win at an auction, what strategies they should use. And is that something uh, that buyers agents can help with? And uh, how do you advise uh, clients who are looking to buy a, p- a property at auction? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I advise them to use us, that, that kind of version. <laughs> that. The thing about an auction is strategy plays a big part of it, right? You need to read the room. It's kind of like a poker game. You need to see who's running out of money, who's got a lot more steam left in the tank. Um, is the property on the market or is it on the market? How many players are left? So, you know, without giving away all of my secrets, there definitely is strategy to it. And it is definitely about reading the room and knowing who's there and who your competition is. And if it is even worth buying at auction, if it's worth trying to buy it before auction, if it's better to let it pass in after auction, you know, there's so many different things that can happen that um, it's important to know what's going on and to make the right uh, decision before you just rock up and pay the highest price. Simon, have you noticed any changes in uh, the things that your clients are seeking in a property in, uh, in lately? Um, I mean, obviously now that COVID seems to be a footnote in history, are people still placing a high priority on you know having a home office? Not really. I mean, a lot of people do work from home a few days a week now. Um, but an office has always sort of been part of it. Since COVID hit, we're buying a lot more sort of rural or holiday or coastal type houses for people. Um, but as far as just sort of standard families, it is typically just the the family home or the apartment um, with a bit of a workspace. It, it hasn't changed too dramatically. For sure. And we talked a bit about Los Angeles off air, but one thing that struck me watching Lux, list, Lux listings is that you get a lot for your money at the luxury end of the market, especially in Sydney. Uh, you know, there's there's harbour harbourside views, there's really luxury, really nicely designed homes. So how does Sydney and more broadly the Australian market compare on the global stage at the luxury end, especially compared to other sort of big cities such as Los Angeles? Sydney is one of the most expensive luxury markets in the world. The prices are ridiculous, but on the same hand, they're so sought after and they're so few and far between and our market dips so uh, less frequently than anywhere else in the world. That it that is the reason why. But our prices are very high. But we are one of the safest, most sought after uh, real estate markets that exists 
in the world today. Now let's just get some of your insights into the, you know, what's currently happening with the market, Simon. Um, I mean, obviously we were seeing some price falls, uh, but then, you know, that seemed to stop uh, last month. So is, is now a good time to buy? Have we reached the bottom? Uh, if I knew where the bottom was, I'd be on a beach somewhere <laughs> uh, with all due respect. But I think you can never pick the bottom. You never will be able to pick the bottom. You can pick opportunistic times and we're in an opportunistic time. I think if we're going to be six months into the future, you would have missed the opportunity. So it is certainly a good time to buy in my mind. You talked about the Australian market being robust and quite safe uh, on the global stage. So that's even with you know 10 consecutive rate rises, the big elephant in the room there. Um, but what trends have you noticed so far in 2023 with the first sort of four months underway? Um, and what do you see playing out for the rest of the year and maybe even into 2024? Well, in New South Wales, there's been a stamp duty exemption for first home buyers under one and a half million. So the up to one and a half million dollar market has been incredibly strong. Anything one and a half to sort of five has definitely weakened, but then the five plus market's been really strong. So um, I haven't noticed a huge difference, um, but except for the fact that we've been buying a lot more deals than we have been seeing in the past few years. I was just going to say, Simon, I mean, obviously, um, when you're a buyer's agent, maybe affordability isn't, isn't a huge uh, concern when, you, when you, you know, you're acting as agent for, for luxury properties. But you talked about, you know, Sydney, for example, being, you know, the most expensive market in, uh, you know, almost the world. Um, do you see, you know, any um, resolution to the, to the affordability problem in the near future? Or, what, I mean, if not, what, what should, um, should, should governments be struggle. thinking about doing? I think it's a real struggle. It's going to come back to the people who can afford, who can't afford to live in a house they're going to live in. They're going to have to be rent investors. So, you know, buy an investment property um, where they can and rent where they want to live um, because it is very expensive to live in Sydney. So you're either going to have to move further out or you're going to have to rent and buy investment property so you're in the market and you can take advantage of the great capital growth that Sydney and Australia has to offer. And we'll just uh, touch on auctions again. So you mentioned uh, either buying prior to the auction or um, if it passes in. So how does the sort of game change when um, when you put in an offer before the auction or when it passes in? Do the tactics change? Uh, is that when the real game starts? If it passes in, then the power goes to the buyer always. For sure. And I think that's uh, sort of all we have time for on the Savings Tip Chart podcast. We'll let you get on with your uh, Easter festivities. And uh, Simon Cohen, thanks for joining us on the Savings Tip Chart podcast. Cheers, Simon. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. All right, that was Simon Cohen from Cohen Handler Buyers Agents. Um, and that just about wraps it up, I think, Harrison, for another episode of the Savings Tip Jar. Yep, it was another good episode as always and it was good to have uh simon on you know i'm sure he's a busy man and i understand he was jetting off somewhere so um yeah it was a really good insight too because buyers agents until sort of recently until maybe the advent of lux listings uh the amazon prime program um a lot of people didn't actually know what a buyer's agent was it's a very sort of american concept i guess but now it's being brought to australia um and i can definitely see their worth um if you just can't be bothered to um, hunt, hunt the listings and trust that the selling agent is going to do a good deal with you and um, be open and forthcoming with the information. Yeah, I, I mean, they can certainly save you a lot of time and time is money. And, um, you know, there is a lot of hassle with, with buying property. You're constantly scouring the market every day. 
I mean, it's kind of people get their kicks out of doing that as well. You know, I have to say, I, you know, while I spend a lot of time doing it, I do. I was quite intrigued and interested and, and engaged with, with the whole process. Mm-hmm. Want to be a part of it all, but some people that are very, you know, time poor and, and don't, and they're very busy with with the jobs. Not saying I'm not busy and oh. twiddling my thumbs, but um, you know, there are people that just don't have the time to be to be scouring the market all and um, and and hunting down the best deals and and asking all or having the expertise to ask all the right questions of the sellers and the agents that you're dealing with and to, to sort of figure out what's wrong with the property and and, um, and things like that. So I can certainly see see their worth. And there's also like the um, the usefulness of uh, a buyer's agent knowing what's off the market. So people, vendors who don't want to maybe list their property for sale, have a big signboard out the front saying for sale. Um, they might have a quiet word to these vendors, maybe previous clients in the past and say, did you want to sell your home off market? I have a potential buyer who's interested in this area and you don't need to wait till the property is on, on realestate.com.au or domain or whatever to, um, Get, get a property and maybe the buyer's agent has a special relationship with the selling agent too and they do off-market deals and um, in a hot market that can be a good way to get a better price yeah, um, without like 50 people and then you that, with. that little leg up that competitive advantage yeah for sure um, so yeah as I said thanks for listening to another episode of the savings tip jar um, really appreciate your support as always appreciate any thoughts or feedbacks you might have so please get in touch with us via our Facebook Twitter or Instagram or shoot an email to inquiries at savings.com.au thank you cheers bye sound good bye